Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. This week, the news is all about two uh, competing attractions. The latest comments from the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, and the latest quarterly earnings report from NVIDIA, the Nasdaq company whose next-generation computer chips are powering the development of this year's number one stock market theme, artificial intelligence. NVIDIA did not disappoint with its second-quarter earnings release, with its earnings coming in way ahead of analyst estimates for the second-quarter running. With companies of all sorts vying to develop their AI capabilities, demand for NVIDIA's chips has gone through the roof, with revenues coming in at $13.5 billion in the quarter, more than $2 billion ahead of analysts' consensus expectations. And that's expected to continue, with revenues topping $16 billion in the third quarter of this year. Profits at NVIDIA have gone up tenfold from a year ago. The shares have tripled this year, and we're up another 6% this week, which in turn helped to push the NASDAQ index, this year's best-performing leading stock market index, up by 2% on the week. The company has also promised to buy back $25 billion of its own shares, an apparent sign of confidence by the management that its remarkable growth potential has still not been fully reflected in its soar-away share price. As the founder of the company said, it certainly looks like the development of AA will mark a new era in the development of digital economy. But the question is always, when it comes to stocks like NVIDIA, is whether and how much of this growth potential is already in the price. Already some analysts are comparing the performance of NVIDIA's shares since last year with those of Cisco, one of the stocks that dominated in the run-up to the TMT bubble more than 20 years ago. Well, we'll find out about that in due course. But for now, this is definitely a mega cap growth story that has really lit up the equity market. A much anticipated speech by Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, at the annual Central Bankers Retreat at Jackson Hole in Wyoming, always a closely followed event, attracted a similar amount of attention, but was inevitably rather less dramatic than NVIDIA's release. Mr. Powell essentially refused to be drawn any further on the Fed's future plans for interest rates, rehearsing the now familiar arguments on both sides of the equation. On the one hand, inflation is down, but not yet beaten, certainly not what they call core inflation, so interest rates may yet have to go higher, while the Fed's medicine of successive sharp rises in interest rates is starting to work, slowing down the economy, but not sufficiently clearly yet to justify easing interest rates either. Short and medium-dated bond yields in the US were up again ahead of Friday's speech by Mr. Powell, with the 10-year Treasury touching its highest level since 2007 at one stage, though that reversed a little on the final day's trading, while yields on the longest-dated US Treasury bonds eased a little. A similar pattern of higher short-term bond yields and easing longer-term yields was visible in the UK gilt market. Turning to the equity markets, NASDAQ again topped the leaderboard of the main market indices, up around just over 2%, as I've said already. The S&P 500 was up around 0.8%, the FTSE All Share 0.9%, reversing the downward trend of the last month or so. The Japanese market was up 0.5%, and China was yet again out of favour, the main indices there falling around 2%. Momentum is deteriorating for the London equity market, but still positive for the US and Japan, less so for Europe. The Investment Trust Index, meanwhile, was flat on the week, without any particular clear patterns in the movements of individual trusts. Though it was notable that the Chinese trusts were perhaps inevitably down again, a number of smaller companies were also struggling a little, but there was some pickup in the performance of infrastructure, renewables and property all of which have been badly hit by the continued rise in bond yields. Maybe that sector is now sensing that the worst of the bond yield adverse movements is coming to an end. We shall see. 
Uh, to discuss all this, I'm joined this week by Max King, the former Investec fund manager, now a well-known market and investment trust commentator, to discuss his latest thoughts. And by Rhys Davis, manager of the Invesco Bond Market Income Plus Investment Trust, the largest in the loans and bond sector of the AIC's sectoral classification. It's been a while since we've had a bond expert on the podcast, and with bond yields still marching higher, it seems a good moment to get a practitioner's perspective on the dramatic moves we've seen across the bond spectrum since the start of last year. There's not time to include all his interesting comments in the main podcast, so we have posted the full-length recording as a bonus on the Moneymakers website. For subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle this week, by coincidence, we have a profile of another Invesco Trust, this time the Invesco Perpetual UK Smaller Companies Trust, ticker IPU, and a fascinating conversation with Graham Harrison, the executive chairman of ASIC Risk Consultants, which monitors the performance of wealth managers' private client portfolios, in which uh, he explains how come nearly every private client firm seems able to claim to prospective clients that they deliver first quartile performance. How is that possible? And what is the real position when you look behind the numbers? Well, you can find out by listening in to this uh, conversation. We also this week have our usual regular roundup of all the latest news, share price, NAV and discount movements from the Investment Trust world. Turning to the news from the Investment Trust sector, it's been a relatively quiet week with only a handful of announcements. Starting with annual results, there were two trusts reporting this week. The first was Aberdeen UK Smaller Companies Growth Trust, ticker AUSC, formerly managed by uh, Harry Nimmo, a well-known name in the Investment Trust world but since his retirement by his uh, colleagues Abby Glennie and Amanda Yeaman. Here the trust reported NAV total return of minus 7.4%, which was just over 4% behind its benchmark smaller companies index. The company attributed the underperformance to its long-standing quality growth bias, which has been broadly out of favour during this period. Notable here that the management fee is being reduced by 10 basis points or 0.1% with effect from the 1st of July, and the board has been busy buying back shares. It has a policy of seeking to protect an 8% discount in normal market conditions, but this has been exceeded consistently in recent weeks, and uh, the shares that the board has repurchased have been at a weighted average discount of 12.8%, and the discount remains above 10% at the moment. So uh, it's been more active over the last 12-month period than any previous period with the exception of 2015, when the, the trust held a tender offer. Also reporting was uh, Atlantis Japan Growth, ticker AJG, which reported NAV total return of minus 4% in sterling terms. This is the trust that the board has proposed a merger with the larger Nippon Active Value Fund, another Japanese trust, ticker NAVF, which is expected to go through. But the company did note that it has a continuation vote in December, which will be held if needed, but only if that merger fails to be approved by shareholders, which does look very likely that it will be. Among companies reporting interims, we heard from Pershing Square Holdings, ticker PSH, whose uh, interim results for the period to the 30th of June showed NAV total return of 10%, positive result, but still behind the 16.9% performance of the S&P 500 index in dollar terms. This trust, which is managed by uh, the well-known fund manager Bill Ackman, had some individual stock-picking successes, but uh, its return was uh, held back by the continued policy of holding put options on the S&P 500 and also by its holdings of interest rate swaps. The manager, Bill Ackerman, says he's still concerned about inflation and rising bond yields and what they may do to equity valuations. And these uh, measures are designed to protect the portfolio against any sudden or sharp sustained falls in the equity markets. The company continues to buy back its shares. BlackRock World Mining reported interim results as well, showing the NAV down 7.1% on a total return basis compared to 5.4% decline in its composite benchmark in sterling terms. The trust said that it started the year well, but commodity prices have been weaker since uh, the banking crisis back in March and uncertainty around the prospects for Chinese growth. Uh, while BlackRock World Mining was one of the few investment companies to be issuing shares in the first half of this year, as recently as May it was uh, issuing shares while it traded a premium, uh, it has since moved to a slight discount. And there is some concern what the final dividend will be this year, given that 
earnings per share have fallen in the first half by around 16%. Princess Private Equity, ticker PEY, also reported interims, showing a NAV total return of 3.5% positive, mostly coming from valuation gains. The share price here has been much stronger performance, a share price total return up 27.8%, driven by the fact that the discount on this one has narrowed from over 40% to around 30%, or even slightly lower now. The story here has been that this is one of the trusts that ran into a spot of bother last year when it uh, was forced to suspend one of its quarterly dividends because of a mismatch between its cash and currency hedging policy. Uh, Men did not have the money to pay the dividend immediately. As a result of which, there's been boardroom turnover here. It's recruiting new directors to replace those who uh, withdrew their nominations to be a director following uh, shareholder representations. So a period of change here. The new chairman has not yet been appointed, so there's an interim one in place at the moment. There's a question here how the trust will adjust its strategy in the future. It says that it's looking to focus on building, I quote, a new type of defensiveness to drive growth in the coming periods. What that means, of course, is not yet clear. The dividend here has been reinstated, though, and is calculated every quarter on the basis of 5% of net asset value. So this is one of these trusts that uh, bases its dividend policy on a fixed percentage of its performance. Here in NAV terms, sometimes it's done in share price terms, but here in NAV terms. But there's no guarantee that this dividend will continue to be covered by earnings. We also heard results from CT Private Equity Trust, ticker CTP2. NAV total return down 2.3%. Negative return in a period when the all share was up 2.6%. From JP Morgan US Smaller Companies, which showed a NAV total return of 0.4%, in other words, roughly flat, which was slightly behind the 2.1% return from its benchmark Russell 2000 index. And there were updates from Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, ticker CORD, which has made a significant investment in a speed fiber business, buying a stake from the Irish Infrastructure Fund for 190 million euros. Uh, this is interesting to the extent that Cordiant Digital Infrastructure is one of the infrastructure trusts which is continuing to invest in new assets rather than, as some of the others are doing, either considering share buybacks or repaying or refinancing their debt in the face of significant discounts. And also updates from MB Private Equity and GCP Infrastructure. In terms of corporate developments, we also heard some updates from the two troubled investment trusts whose shares remain suspended after issues with their portfolios, namely Home REIT, ticker H-O-M-E, where the new investment policy proposed by the board has been backed by virtually every single shareholder. AEW UK is now the investment manager of this particular troubled social housing trust, and has been given the task of stabilising the portfolio, which in the short term means uh, looking to re-tenant some properties and selling others. There is, however, no certainty when the shares of this one will resume trading. And also from Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker TLEI, whose shares have also been suspended following the discovery of serious problems at one of its large Indian investment projects. The board and their fund manager here have been at loggerheads for several weeks, but at the latest shareholder meeting, 58% of votes were cast against the continuation resolution put forward by the investment manager, which the board had recommended shareholders should reject, as they have now done. So the question here is what happens next? And the board says that it is uh, commencing an immediate review of options for the fund's future, with a view to bringing forward proposals to shareholders within the next four months. One of the options will include relaunching the company since the basic strategy that the company has uh, does seem to have some support amongst its uh, shareholders. But whether that's feasible is another matter given the very public wrangling between the investment manager and the board has not particularly inspired confidence. And so uh, a number of analysts say they're doubtful whether it will be possible to relaunch the strategy when the shares finally come back from suspension. Uh, the message here, therefore, being that the future of this one still remains a little bit up in the air. And we also heard from the Renewables Infrastructure Group, ticker TRIG, which has sold three wind farms with an aggregate capacity of 35 megawatts for 25 million euros, a 25% uplift from the end of December valuation. This is a sign of a trust which is actually looking to realise 
some of its assets in order to uh, underpin the valuations it has been using and also in order to try and inspire more confidence amongst shareholders. Uh, this one trading at a discount like many others in the infrastructure sector. Other trusts which have been selling assets recently include 3i Infrastructure, Hickel and International Public Partnerships. And there are updates too from Blackstone Loan Financing, a debt trust with a market cap around $225 million, which is providing more details about its uh, proposed managed wind-down ahead of the extraordinary general meeting on the 13th of September. The board here, though, did uh, warn that even if the wind-down is approved by shareholders, which seems again seems likely, it could take up to seven years, given the complexity of many of the specialist debt instruments that this fund has been investing in including collateral loan obligations, CLOs. You may remember those had a part to play way back in the run-up to the global financial crisis. And NB Global Monthly Income, ticker NBMI, said that it is returning a further £20 million to shareholders via the compulsory redemption programme that it is engaged on as a prelude to, again, this trust being wound up. Shareholders approved the wind-down here on the 27th of January this year and it is realising its assets on a quarterly basis. It has so far distributed around two-thirds of the net asset value that it reported at 27th of January. The board said it expects to complete the disposal of around three-quarters of its assets by the end of 2023. It was a pleasure, as always, to catch up this week with Max King, the former fund manager, now well-known market commentator and Contributor to Money Week and other publications, including, I have to say, the uh, forthcoming annual Investments Trust Handbook, which I have the honour of editing. So looking forward to your contribution for that, Max. But in the meantime, here we are in August. We're recording this on Thursday. Some central bankers are holed up in Wyoming at their annual kind of think tank or whatever they like to call it uh, meeting. We don't know what they're going to say yet, uh, whether Jay Powell is going to throw another little bomb into the markets. But um, What's your take on uh, where we are at the moment in terms of the markets generally and uh, obviously this key issue of what's going to happen to interest rates in the short term? Well, as we know, markets bottomed last October and have been rallying pretty strongly, admittedly on a very narrow leadership basis of the big eight American mega cap companies. And the bears haven't given up yet, which tells us that there's quite a way further to go. But the market got a bit overbought and we've seen in late July, August, but Something of a setback, which is not entirely surprising. So um, I think we've probably seen as much of a setback as we're going to get, and the markets will progress on upwards from here. In the UK, it's still rather different. The UK has been another terrible year for the UK, reverting to norm. And that, unfortunately and unpredictably, has affected investment trusts. Despite their overseas connections, they've continued to be out of favour. The discounts have continued to widen. And I think um, I saw some numerous saying that only 6.5% of the a number of investment trusts are actually trading on a premium now. So it's been an onward-downward spiral, and uh, hopefully that will turn around. I mean, those of us with long memories of the investment trust world, of course, go back to the pre-discount control days, if you like, back in the 90s and the 80s. And uh, it was quite common for investment trusts generally to trade at discounts back in those days. But I hope we're not going back to that kind of era. In those days, there were no discount controls, no buybacks. Directors were pretty sleepy. There was very little retail investment. It was all largely owned by institutions who basically were there for the discount. And as soon as the discount narrowed, they were out. Now, when the investment trusts are largely held by retail investors and by private wealth managers, it ought to be a different story. Exactly. Not seeing action investment trusts, people sorting themselves out and saying, well, you know what, this is a bit of an eye-opener. Not only do we have to buy back shares or the trust isn't performing, we have to move management companies. And there's been quite a lot of mergers going on. And Aberdeen have been pretty good at this, sorting out a rather ragged portfolio, which makes me quite bullish on the future of the Aberdeen Trust. Right. So those that remain, as it were, you've got more confidence in. And of course, they've got quite a wide range of things. They did have a lot of Asian trusts because they did a mergers with uh, Standard Life and they acquired some extra trusts. They've always been strong in Asia, but uh, lots of sort of different trusts in there, stable, and not always as clearly differentiated as uh, would be a much used to investors, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and they've emerging a couple of Asian trusts. They've emerging a couple of UK income trusts. They've wound up a Latin American trust, which was too small. They're merging the Japan trust with Nippon Active Value. You know, there's been quite a lot going on there, which is, I think, a positive sign. And I think I've tended to find in the past that investment trust managers have taken an active role in looking after investment trusts and sorting out performance issues 
tend to be worth backing. And JP Morgan was prominent in that area. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm impressed by what Aberdeen is doing. And I think investors will be rewarded, which they haven't been, it has to be said, for some time. I guess there's a sort of cleansing process. The derating has concentrated minds a lot. We used to be able to say that one of the great advantages of investment trusts is that they do have boards who can be active. They're not all of them are, but they can be active and should be active. And we contrasted that favorably with what happens in the open-ended world where funds that run out of steam just go on forever until they quietly die. They go on gathering fees for a while. Yeah. But of course, interesting. Like, this sort of like gas. <laughs> like gas. Yeah, we talked about gas. Perhaps <laughs> listeners don't know about gas, but gas was a so-called absolute return strategy. Tell us about what your thoughts on that one while we're at it. <laughs> I think it was launched 15 years ago. And for a while, everybody thought this was the way to run money, a sort of hedge fund with much lower fees. I think it raised £26 billion in the UK and a similar amount overseas, and everyone rushed to copy it. And it was just such a stupid idea from the start. It was never going to work. Macro hedge funds were struggling, and they, of course, because of their fees, could pay to attract the best people around. And all these institutional fund managers who thought they could produce the same performance without taking risk and with mediocre managers were just deluding themselves. Yeah, now it's been wound up. We heard this week exactly. The other day it was wound up, a very pale shadow of its former self. Of course, we also got this new consumer duty initiative by our friends at the Financial Conduct Authority. It does seem to have had some effect in that uh, one or two fund management groups have rather sheepishly announced, well, they are closing down a number of funds because they can't actually demonstrate they're providing any value to their investors. Basically, if you're an investment trust with an active board, you shouldn't actually need consumer duty to tell you what to do. But uh, in the opening world, it's been a different story for a while. So I guess both boards are on their game. Well, the big issue for investment trusts over the years has been the ever-lengthening report and accounts. And it used to be the case that people read investment trusts or other reports and accounts from cover to cover. They don't anymore. Nobody reads these um, reports and accounts. Maybe the non-executive directors do, and I can't be sure, but I expect most of those don't. But the more regulatory guff goes in them, the less they are read. There's a huge amount of repetition, that's for sure. I remember when I was on the board, I did actually one year go through the annual report of this trust, and I managed to remove 30% of the words in it just by taking out duplication and bits that lawyers had added in in the wrong place and the repetitive stuff. You're absolutely right. And of course, that's a real shame because people should read the annual report, I think, at the very least. It should be readable and give you most of the information that you need. Well, well, it isn't. <laughs> actually, I know one prominent investment trust analyst who's been in the industry, a backbone of the industry for 25 years, who says he never reads the report he can. Right. <laughs> I don't suppose we should really encourage listeners not to look at them at all. But No, uh, it doesn't say not look at them. It says never read them through thoroughly. Yeah, okay. Of course, some, some of the alternative asset trusts I found much better. They produce much better annual reports, partly because they're newer, I think, and they can put nice pictures in, but they also put a lot more information in some cases. And I do think that's helpful. They do get rewarded. Well, that mm. might bring us on to something we could talk about, some specific trust sectors and uh, individual trusts. Let's start by talking about private equity, because I think one of the criticisms of private equity is that they haven't done much in the way of disclosure, or at least such as they do disclose is not necessarily particularly easy to unpick particularly some of the bigger ones, which have so many investments in different funds and so on. One or two initiatives have been taken now. We've seen people like Pantheon announcing big share buyback programs, which we haven't really seen so far. But the discounts, I guess, have stopped falling, stopped widening. But what are your thoughts about the private equity sector at the moment and any names in particular that stand out for you? Well, of course, 3i has been a star performer this year, and that's a private equity fund. So there's been a bit of divergence. I think you've got to separate them into the direct managers and the fund of funds. And people think that Pantheon and Princess and Harbour Vest are fund of funds, but they're not really. Increasingly, these fund of funds are putting more and more money into co-investments, which means that they are much lower fees. They're also doing more in the secondary market, which means they're often buying into funds at a discount. So I think these funds have actually adapted to a more difficult environment. And yet still, the wealth managers sort of refuse to buy them, or they keep their allocations very small, and private investors just sort of don't know about them. A problem with a fund of funds is there isn't anything to latch onto. What does that fund own? Whereas at least with 3i, you can say it it owns this uh, discount retail chain, Action, which has been a huge success. And, you know, without that focus on something which is a huge success and which the company owns, it's sort of very difficult for people to get excited. 
Actually, I had a quick chance to look at the results of the Princess Private Equity Trust, which is managed by the Partners Group, which is quite a well-known Swiss hedge fund and uh, private equity house. But basically, there's nothing kind of granular you can get your teeth into. There's just a lot of talk about a lot of things that they've invested in. And it's an interesting one there where two of the directors were basically stood down, I think, after they made a mess up of their dividend payment. They're one of the few private equity trusts that does pay a decent dividend. So they're having to refresh the board. But it's difficult for them, you know, after that mishap to suddenly become, if you like, user-friendly. I mean, they're never going to get to a premium, these kind of trusts. They used to trade around 20%. Now they trade around 40% or so. But presumably they could get back to 20%. There could be a nice pickup there if a little bit of demand comes back. Well, they were launched 15, 20 years ago, so they could get back to premium. And they need stories. And I think the stories is what gets people interested. Also, once they start performing and the underlying assets are doing well and the discount is falling, the share price will be going up. And that becomes a story. So it goes from a vicious cycle to a virtuous cycle, I hope. So they just have to sort of hang in there and prove their worth. Um, Their underlying portfolios are doing just fine. They're proving to be very resilient. The management job seems to be pretty good, and they're buying back shares where they can. So I just think they just need to keep going and not panic. There is a wide disparity across the sector. You've got things like Literacy Capital and Oakley Capital, who basically trade on much better than some of the fund of funds and so on, as you say. Um, well, Oakley Capital is a direct investor, so there are things there you can latch on to. Uh, so Literacy Capital, I sort of rather kick myself because I knew the people who are behind it by reputation going back decades. And... Uh, I sort of missed that when it came up. But if I'd known, I thought, these people are geniuses and they're putting their money into a fund. What's not to like? But yeah, Literacy Capital is a great fund. Even and though it's invested in the UK. And I was going to ask you about HG Capital as well. It's one that obviously done extraordinarily well over the years, does now trade on a big discount, has a sort of tech-ish, sort of software-ish type bias. Do you think that looks attractive where it is at the moment? Yeah, very attractive. One of the great guides to private equity funds is to look at their disposals. And if they are selling businesses at a significant premium to their last valuation, then it shows that their valuations, far from being aggressive, are actually quite conservative. And HGT has a fantastic record at selling what seems to be quite fully priced companies at large premium. So I think HGT is one of the most attractive in the the sector. So let's talk about the commercial property sector, which has also uh, been in the eye of the storm in the last 18 months. Well, last 12 months, I suppose, it's been really bad in terms of discount widening and so on. And it got bad a couple of weeks ago, even further, another sell-off. Uh, but they have rallied this week. What are your thoughts about the commercial property sector? I think you have to be selective. And there are good funds and there are worrying funds. I think pessimism about uh, retail property has been exaggerated. You know, that uh, Shopping centres are in trouble. High streets, not necessarily. Out-of-town shopping parks, like Edison has, are doing fine. I think the story in office property has been overdone. There isn't a great surplus of supply of office property, and people are returning to the office. I mean, the, the negatives of working from home has finally cottoned on to just about everyone. Interesting that Goldman Sachs now say they want everyone to work in the office, and they're a bit of a leader in this area. And as people return to the office, I'd have thought that office property will do better. It's the old story, though. Um, quality office property, newly built, newly refurbished, which caters for modern needs, is doing fine. And secondary or tertiary property is struggling. And then housing, well, you know, every five, ten years, people think it's the end of the world for the UK housing. It sort of never is. And by the time everybody wakes up to the threat to the housing market, the bear market is half over. So you know, I suspect that people are too pessimistic about that. So I think it's okay. And uh, the best place to invest is from Marcus Fairmudge's TR Property, which is trading on a nice discount. And he's the person who follows a sector on a day-to-day basis and can chop and change. So you know, why try and spend too much time worrying about what's going on in different subsections of the property market when he can do it for you? Well, I suppose if you're looking for a yield, I guess that's what attracts some people to the commercial property sector. But that obviously has some problems during the pandemic when they all cut their dividends bar one. There's a story going around that these discounts, there could be some real value in there for buyers and so on. And we heard this week that Edison Property confirmed that they are actually in advanced stage of talks to sell their portfolio. Do you think there's much heft in the story that some big buyers are going to come along and take out one or two of these trusts and that will trigger a big re-rating? It could be, but I think it's almost... Not dangerous, but we want to be wary about buying the bargains. For investment trusts, property shares, the markets as a whole, actually, cheap will always be cheap. The cheap private equity funds, the high-yielding funds, 
you can sort of wait on those because they'll always be cheap and you'll always find a reason to buy them. What you need to buy when the market's in the doldrums is the quality, the quality which is never cheap. And you can just about buy the quality when the market's in the doldrums, but you can never buy it when the market's running. And I think 3i showed that at the turn of the year. If you said, well, 3i is not really on an attractive discount, but it's on a discount, which it very rarely is. This is the time to buy it. You made a lot of money. And the same is true for literacy capital and, and I think for the property fund. So don't necessarily buy what's cheap. Buy what's reassuringly expensive is my advice. I mean, the area which has been hit quite hard is infrastructure. Infrastructure funds have been hit quite hard, especially renewable energy. And part of that's due to rising bond yields, which I suspect are at or approaching a peak, although not necessarily in the UK. But I think there are other reasons why people are negative on the infrastructure funds. Part of that's taxation. Higher taxes and reduced investment income allowances are turning people into sellers of these funds. And the other area is that the reality is that there's a huge backlash against renewable energy. You know, it got rammed down everyone's throats and People are throwing up as a result. And I think this has resulted in people getting overexcited about renewable energy last year and the year before. And now there is revulsion. And I expect it will return to some sort of sensible middle way at some point. But um, the sector is going through the grinder at the moment. Well, in terms of the quality animals, would the same sort of guidance apply, you think, the stick with the quality animals? For example, if you look at some of the sort of core infrastructure trusts, they're obviously most directly affected in a way by the competition from gilts and so on. But something like BBGI, I don't know if you'd think they'd be the best of the three of those, Hickel and IMPP. Would you agree with that? Or what other animals would you regard as quality in this field, including renewables? I would have said in the past 3i infrastructure, which has been the best performer. and was always the most expensive. It's a classic example of that. Yes, BBGI, Hickel, I think they're all pretty good. I've always worried in the past a bit about INPP, but I think actually that's quite good quality. So yes, definitely the infrastructure funds aren't as cheap as the renewable energy, but I suspect for the time being, that's the place to start. Well, let's move away from the alternative asset sector for the moment. And let's talk about one or two names in the uh, equity sector, part of the investment trust world. And in particular, let's talk about Pershing Square Holdings. This is always an interesting one to follow, a pretty large fund managed by a very well-known, high-profile US hedge fund manager, Bill Ackman. What do you think about this one? They've been saying for two or three years now they're really going to do something about this trust. They're either going to get the discount in or they're going to come up with some creative solution. And he's very big on creative solutions, as we know. (laughs) What do you think about Pershing Square? It's it's interesting. If you remember last year, they took this big stake in Netflix, and then Netflix had a profit warning, so they sold out. And very soon after, I had a coffee with one of their people and said, you know, I think that was a mistake. I think Netflix's problems are soluble, quite easily soluble, and will be solved, and that actually you shouldn't have sold. And they sort of listened to me and said, you're probably right, but these are reasons we had had to sell. And I just said, you know, you're going to regret this. And a year later, they admitted, yes, it had been a mistake. And then I said, the trouble is with Pershing Square now is that you need a high-profile story to go for. Netflix was that story. And people need more than just a 35 or 40% discount. They need something which is turning around and which is interesting. And Pershing Square isn't providing that story at the moment. If they can find a great investment and make a success of it, then people will take notice. But it's like private equity. People need a story. But I think it's great value longer term. So I think it's a great fund to hold. It's a relatively concentrated portfolio. Big bets, as you say. The Netflix one was a classic one. Universal Music, they made a big investment in. And he's always talking about, he's tried to have what's called a a SPAC and then a Spark. And now he's still hoping to get some vehicle out there which will get past the uh, authorities' kind of special purpose vehicle. That's not particularly exciting for most investors. I don't think that's worked very well for Mm -hmm. them. And of course, he's a US name with a UK listing, which is something of an anomaly. So maybe one day he will actually do what he said he might do and move it away from London. Do you think that might happen? I suppose it's possible, but I think he can turn this thing around with a high-profile deal or two. I think his fan base will return. So what else have you been logging on your your own? You, you scan the market pretty frequently. So one of the things that's interesting this year has been how the defensive funds have actually been lagging quite badly. And this capital gearing there, there's rougher, there's the Troy funds, personal assets. And they're still trading pretty close to asset value, if not at premium, because they are defensive. 
And I have to say that I think they've got quite a long period in the doldrums. I can see those shares going to discounts and them doing lots and lots of buybacks, simply because as risk appetite returns, they're in the wrong place. And they still have record low equity weightings. And they all say that they can turn around and buy equities when the time is right. But my suspicion is that time will never be right. They will never buy equities. And when they do buy equities, they usually buy the wrong equities. You know, Ruffer in particular has always been very bad at stock selection because it doesn't fundamentally like equities. It buys what it thinks is the lowest risk, the lowest common denominator of equities, which is cheap value. And that just never performs. As for um, capital gearing, they had this brilliant idea of investing in index-linked gilts and index-linked treasuries. And the trouble was that uh, real index-linked yields were far too low last year, and now they've gone up. So that hasn't helped them at all. I don't know. I think you know they'll have their time again. When the market's booming, this will be the time to say, sell your equity funds and buy into personal assets and rougher and capital gearing. But for now, I think these are good assets to sell. Well, I'm sure we'll hear from one or two of them in due course what they think about what you've said. I think it's very fair. They got a lot of praise during the big sell-off when they, they performed pretty well, but has been tough recently. And as you say, I think the big move in tips in particular from the real yields, you know, yields after inflation gone from negative to positive or moved higher anyway in the States. That has been a big issue for them. And if you've made a big fuss, I guess, about essentially <laughs> going back to absolute return, they do kind of implicitly promise that they're going to try and not lose money in any 12-month period. Uh, it has been disappointing, no doubt about that, in the last period. I think they're locked in bears of risk assets. An exception might be RIT, which is trading in a large discount. I quite like their thesis. I know they've been in the doldrums and not done terribly well, and people worry about the private equity. But I think they've got the right attitude. They say that with higher bond yields and systematically in an era where inflation is always a bit more of a threat and uh, real yields are high and bond yields are high. So the area of the market to go for is not value, it's growth, because growth is what will bail you out. Once you've got your growth ratings down to a sensible level, which I suspect they are, the growth is what will actually make you the equity returns in the medium term. And I quite like that thesis. And I think they've had a bit of a kicking over the last year and to be fair, I think you gave them a bit of a kicking a year ago, didn't you? I think yeah, that was true. I did. And I'm sort of saying, you know what, if you pay no attention held with it against my suggestion, I think now you're right. Stick with it. Maybe even add some more, because I suspect that there'll be a bit of a revival from them. Looking forward, in a few weeks we'll be into the final quarter. Always an interesting period. What are you hoping to see? I mean, you talked last time about the pandemic of pessimism. Well, that seems to be turning around. Sentiment has been improving, according to all the surveys. But the economic data remains not entirely clear. I'm sure you'll have something to say about the fact that the leading economic indicators, as chronicled by various parties in the US, have been declining for 15 months in a row, which should predict a recession. But you're, I think, as always, uh, refreshingly contrarian on that particular point. Well, yeah, I think that economies will continue to be sluggish, and we may even see a mild recession. But, you know, recessions come and go, and equities look at the longer term. And if the result of a mild recession is to reduce inflation pressures and bring down the threat of higher bond yields and higher interest rates, then I think equity markets will see it as a positive. They will look through it and uh, perform quite well. And remember, this is a pre-election year in the US. It's usually a pretty good year. So I'd be quite upbeat about the last part of the year. Investment trust discounts are actually, I think, at bargain basement levels, and that makes almost all investment trusts extremely good value. So, yeah, I'd be pretty positive about the outlook. You know, there are always worries on the horizon, but I mean, there are just so many areas of the market that look attractive. You know, emerging markets looks attractive. Japan looks attractive. I think the US is a powerhouse. I even sort of see signs of positive movement in the UK, what impresses me about the UK is that some of those bombed out recovery stories are now performing. Marks and Spencers, which I've been waiting for a turnaround under Archie Norman for several years, is now really motoring. Rolls-Royce share prices doubled this year. Even the banks are actually performing quite well in the UK over the last year. And I think these companies have started to realise that no one's coming to their rescue. The public doesn't particularly like them. The government hates them. Shareholders have just given up on them. And actually, unless they sort themselves out and run their business for the benefit of their investors, they're finished. So I think a good recovery portfolio is the thing to invest in at the moment in the UK. The trouble is, it's very hard to find them. Since uh, Alistair Mundy went off and became a teacher, there are no recovery investors left. 
And I've looked through all these funds and one or two of us are smattering of recovery stories, but there's nobody taking the bull by the horn and saying, you know what, I want to own Rolls-Royce and Marks and Spencers and Glaxo and maybe a couple of banks and who knows? Actually, I'm not sure about BT. I think BT and Vodafone are are not the ones I'd pick, but I, I think there's potential there. And I think that without the recovery stories turning around, the UK is not going to turn around. I'm sure that's right. On your general point about investment trusts, I've been sort of toying with the phrase that it's not a good time to have been an investment trust investor, but it's probably a very good time to become an investment trust investor because that's of very well across the sector. So let's hope that's uh, how it all plays out. Thank you, Max. Always uh, refreshing to talk to you and to hear your positive and negative views about things. So thank you very much. Look forward to the next time, which will be in uh, a pleasure. few weeks' time. Time then to turn back to the bond markets. And my recent conversation with Reese Davis, manager of the Invesco Bond Income Plus Investment Trust, ticker BIPS or BIPS, which, as it happens, is a technical term much used in the bond markets. It stands for basis points, which is essentially how bond traders describe a one penny move in the price of a bond. So in other words, uh, one hundredth of one percent is a BIP. Reese Davis has been uh, working in fixed income for 20 years and has been manager of this particular trust since July 2014. I began our conversation, which was held before the latest Federal Reserve meeting at Jackson Hole in Wyoming, which often produces policy statements that uh, are of great interest to bond investors. But I began by saying to him that bond investors don't generally like too much excitement And there has been an awful lot of excitement in the bond market over the last 18 months with this very sharp and sudden increase in interest rates and bond yields. So what, Reese, do you make of these dramatic recent developments before we go on to talk about the outlook from here? Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, exciting is the word I would use. We all know now what happened in 2022. Last year, inflation, which is the nemesis of bonds and the bond market, turned out to be a lot higher than most people had expected. That coincided at the start of the year with bond yields being at very low levels. And, you know, if I look at the high yield market in Europe, for example, that was only offering a a yield of 3.4% at the start of 2022. By the end of the year, it was around 8%. So that is far more exciting for income investors like ourselves. So a lot of pain felt by bondholders last year as we moved from low yields to high yields. You know, that shouldn't be played down, but it does leave us or has left us in a very good position now in terms of finding income in the market. And also, I'd always point out the beauty of a bond is that they will recover back to a price of par or 100, which is where bonds are typically issued at their maturity date, so long as a bond issuer does not default. And we we started this year the average bond price in European high yield bond market, for example, at just over 85 cents on the euro. So similarly for this bond portfolio, starting the year with an average bond price well below part, it means it's an exciting time for not just income, but also we're in a position now where bonds can offer not only that that income, but also the potential for capital upside over time as they move back towards part. Yes, you're right. So this has been, uh, as I say, a very eventful period in, in the bond market, but a lot now depends on whether or not we actually reach the peak in the interest rate and bond yield cycle. Do you have a particular view on that? Are we near to the peak in the cycle? I think we are near the end of the cycle. We are seeing some signs that the rapid, and it has been very rapid, very aggressive, rate hiking cycle that we've seen may be nearing an end. If you look at several emerging market economies, for example, Over there, they're starting to ease monetary policy now, as in they are looking to pause or even cut rates. And they typically started the process of of tightening or raising rates earlier than we did over here. So you can certainly criticise the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank for having been late to the game, but then they have been very aggressive in how much they've raised rates. So if you think of the UK, we've gone from a quarter of a percent for the base rate to five and a quarter percent today in, in a little over 18 months. If we look at some of the markets within the bond market that look specifically at forecasts for where interest rates are going, so interest rate swaps, um, without getting too technical with it all. But in the UK, that market is pricing a peak rate of just below 6%. And I think we have to also be very cognizant of the fact that there is the potential for a time lag 
of monetary policy. So it does take time for hiking rates to then pass through into an impact in the real economy. And given the aggressiveness and the pace of that tightening, I think it's important not to get too carried away with the idea of uh, soft economic landing, which is what a lot of the market is now getting more excited about. The flip side to that would be if we are moving into a weaker economic environment, that means rate cuts, essentially, and that's going to bode well for the bond market. Where this trust is focused is the high yield bond market. And what's more important there, actually, is the economic outlook. So we're treading this fine line between the two at the moment in the markets that, that we're operating So there are two very different potential outcomes here, which will have a different impact on the bond market. If the central banks have done too much and something breaks, as the expression goes, then we could see a risk of recession, and that may well lead to yields coming down and therefore capital gains for bondholders. Or we may have this soft landing. Perhaps you could just explain in a little more detail what a soft landing is and why people in the market think that's a possibility. It's quite rare, isn't it? It is rare, yeah. And it's an optimistic outlook and markets and and people, I think, do like to be optimistic. Essentially, it is a situation where we see inflation tempering. And I think we're seeing signs of that for sure. The outlook is starting to look better there. So it's inflation coming off its recent highs and moving to something that is less scary and less concerning for us all at the same time as not having a rapid rise in unemployment and a slowing of growth. That would be your soft landing. Uh, And the reason that people are becoming more optimistic this year about that is a lot of the data in particular around unemployment and the US is the biggest market for bonds. And so a lot of focus is on what is happening in the US. And if you look at US employment data, well, it's not looking too bad at the moment. There aren't really any signs that a recession is hitting. The concern with that approach is it's a backward looking approach. There's a lot of data that shows that the unemployment figures suddenly will turn and suddenly we have the proof that we are in a recession. If you look at some of the leading indicators, there's an index called Leading Economic Indicators Index in the US. If you look at that, then that is starting to look more concerning in terms of the economic outlook. So from my perspective, you can overlay what you're seeing around you. If you think about what is happening in the mortgage market in the UK, for example, and and the, the rapid increase in the cost of mortgages that we've seen, although we have a lot of mortgages in the UK that are fixed rate for a period of time, it still has the potential to hit the economy and to hit spending. That's what I mean about not getting too carried away with this idea of a softer landing. So if we look at your portfolio, what kind of yield are you generating? And what is the potential total return if everything in the portfolio was to return to par and you held it for as long as you owned it? Can you give us any kind of rough indications around those sort of numbers? A lot more than 18 months ago, that's for sure, or two years ago. There's a few different ways to think about the yield on the portfolio. The easiest and most useful first way to look at it is the dividend yield. So the income that the portfolio produces, this is an income focused trust. A lot of shareholders own it for the regular high level of income it produces. So the dividend target is 11 and a half pence per share. On today's share price, that's around a 7.1% dividend yield. That's the first way of looking at it. However, that dividend is more than covered with the income that the portfolio is generating. So that 11 and a half pence is more than covered. The additional income will then be kept in the portfolio and reinvested. The next thing to think about is the average price of the portfolio. That's around 87 today. So well below par. I mentioned earlier, bonds are issued at a price of par or 100 typically, and that is the price at which they're redeemed at maturity. So you can see there the upside over the next four and a half years, which is the average maturity of the bonds in the portfolio. So there's the capital upside and the income. To put those data points, if you like, into one figure, and as bond investors, we talk about the gross redemption yield. And essentially, that is just a yield that combines the income and the potential for capital upside into one number, which is the gross redemption yield. On the portfolio today, that's around 9.8%, so pretty high. That's a rough guide for it. And then, of course, because we have gearing in place in the portfolio, the NAV is 20% geared again to create that portfolio. So essentially, you can multiply that 9.8% by the 20% gearing, so by 1.2%. 
you get to something closer to 11.5 or over 11.5%. So that is your average yield, if you like, over the next four or five years. So much, much better picture than we've had for income investors for many, many years. I've been doing this for 20 years. And what I'm seeing in my markets is something that that, yields that look more like the yields that I was used to when I first started and, and the yields that I was trained to believe that a high yield bond should be paying investors. Yes, well, we've been through a very strange period when, of course, we had negative interest rates for a while, and it hasn't really happened in living memory, the kind of experience you have for the last decade leading up to uh, two years ago. And that's something which I think investors need to bear in mind, that we've been living through a very abnormal period. So that 11.5% is the current geared potential in the portfolio, which is obviously a very positive number if you think that inflation is going to come down. Certainly, if it's down to 5%, which is in the UK where the government is looking for and the Bank of England is looking for, that's still a very positive real return. And of course, if it goes back to target 2%, that's even more attractive. So these are very high potential real returns. But of course, that's partly because a lot of bonds you invest in are what we call a high yield. They're not investment grade bonds, so they have greater credit risk. So what would one typically expect to see? If one thinks about government bonds, perhaps over the course of history, having a real return of somewhere between 1% and 2% maybe, you add on the extra risk of high yield or junk bonds in some cases, as people call them. What kind of extra premium would you expect to be paying on average for high yield bonds? And then we can compare that back to where we are today. First of all, what is a higher bond? Well, it comes down to the rating. So it's not actually to do with the yield on offer. I mean, they are higher yielding than investment grade, but it's the rating. And the ratings are decided by rating agencies looking at the credit profile of the issuer of a bond. So for this portfolio, around a quarter of the portfolio is invested in investment grade rated bonds. So I'll just make that point. And the average rating on the portfolio is double B, which is high quality, high yield on the whole. Going back to 2003, when I started in the market, 7 8% was a perfectly normal level of yield to expect from a high yield bond for the risks of investing. The risks of investing in the high yield market are that these companies have leveraged balance sheets. So they have more debt on their balance sheets and that creates more risk for those companies. So that was the compensation that you would get. And you're right, we can also think about that in terms of the spread. So the additional yield over a government bond. Today in Europe, we're at around the 400 basis points or 4% spread over a government bond for a typical higher bond. It's okay. It's not as tight as we've seen in the past and it's not as wide as we've seen in the past. I do like to think about the higher bond market as having to pay a level of yield, though, the outright compensation for those risks of investing. Those risks are potentially heightened in the environment that we could be facing, which is a weaker economic environment. So we have to be very careful of that. We have a team of credit analysts and their job is to really understand the credit profiles of the companies that we're investing in and then for us to make a decision as to whether the yield is sufficient compensation for the credit risks of investing. So the higher bond market, there are risks, but we deal with those risks through very good credit analysis and also diversification. So having holdings from lots of different bond issuers within the portfolio. More recently, yields in the higher market got to very low levels in 2020 and 21. And if you were looking at this part of the market, you would have heard people saying there's not enough yield compensation. So bonds were being issued sometimes with coupons that could be as low as one point something on the coupon, two or three or four percent was very common for a higher bond. Today, those borrowing costs are typically going to be two, maybe three times higher than what those companies were paying back in, say, 2021. And there's lots of examples now of companies returning to the market post the repricing of yields to higher levels last year, and they are paying a lot more in terms of the coupon. So a name that people will be familiar with, BT issued what's called a corporate hybrid bond a few weeks ago. This is callable in five years. It is high yield rated, but it's very high quality high yield, and and BT is still investment grade rated on the whole, this particular bond is rated high yield, and that's paying 8.375% for those five years. A few years ago, that would have been 4 or 5% coupon, but that's how much things have changed. 
So this is the art of managing a bond portfolio is to balance off the risk against the yield. Though, obviously, if you're running a bond fund, it's not as if the whole thing is going to be wound up at a fixed point in the future. We might come on to what's happening elsewhere in the sector because that actually is happening in one or two cases. But in general terms, running a bond fund with a running yield of the kind you have, I mean, you've got to stay invested. So you have to go with the market and you have to take the swings of the market to some extent, do you not? Which is why you had losses last year. So um, how do you manage that? And what have you done in terms of changing the mix of the portfolio over the last two years as we've been through this difficult period of coming on to uh, what is potentially could be quite a rewarding period? You make a good point. It's an investment trust. It's a fund. It is supposed to be invested in the market. And when the market has a terrible year like it did last year, it is going to impact performance. And it did. The way that we would approach that, though, and the way that we did approach it is towards the end of 2021. And that was the tail end of an incredibly strong period. So we ended up with yields at very low levels towards the end of 2021. Markets weren't really concerned about inflation. Central bankers were telling us it was going to be transitory, etc. For us, the low levels of yield in the market meant that we were pretty uncomfortable with what we could invest in. So fewer and fewer opportunities where we felt that that risk reward, that level of yield reward that we get for the credit risk of investing didn't make sense. So it was tough. And what naturally happens in a period like that is that the portfolio becomes more cautiously positioned in terms of the credit risk we're taking. The rate sensitivity starts to come down. We call that the duration of the portfolio starts to come down. To put it into kind of simple terms, which is how I like to approach things, when a higher bond is issued with a coupon of, say, 25 or 3% and a maturity of seven years, you can imagine there's a lot of sensitivity to rising interest rates. So that bond was being issued with a, a coupon of 2.5%. You can now earn 5% on a two-year UK gilt. So the change in price that that bond has had to go through to reprice to a yield that is offering a spread premium over equivalent government bond it's been quite traumatic. So positioning the portfolio with relatively cautious on the credit quality, and then also thinking about avoiding bonds like that coming into 2022 did actually set us up quite well for the year. Throughout last year, we were able to invest liquidity in the portfolio into bonds as they became more attractive. So we were starting to see better quality bonds that before were trading at very unattractive yields, trading at attractive outright yields. So adding those into the portfolio, feeling quite comfortable about doing that because we weren't having to go too far down the risk spectrum to get good yields again. And also rotating out of those bonds that had performed well in last year's environment. So maybe a shorter dated bond that was less prone to moving around in price with everything that we saw, selling those and rotating them into bonds that were starting to look more attractive than they had done at the start of the year. Uh, And then also we're looking at the new issuance market and that's very important for us as well. So companies that are returning to the market and issuing bonds and no longer being able to issue at very low coupons And like I mentioned, having to issue with much higher coupons, they're great for us to be putting into the portfolio. So the changes that we've seen, we've gone from a fairly cautious portfolio, uh, low duration to over the course of last year, still staying quite cautious, but actually starting to invest more into the market and, and duration naturally increasing as we've done so. And I think it's a much better place today to have slightly higher duration, higher rate sensitivity with the potential for rates to be falling in the hopefully near-term future. If we could just put a number on that, what has happened to the duration of the portfolio over that period since the end of 21 to today? I mean, you can use a single number for duration. It doesn't necessarily mean a lot to most people, but uh, can you give us what those numbers would be? So at the start of last year, the modified duration of the portfolio would have been around low threes. So the modified duration essentially is saying, what would the price move be on the portfolio for a 100 basis points or 1% move in yields? So if it is, I think we were maybe around 3.2. So if it's 3.2, then a 1% move up in yields would lead to a 3.2% decline in the price of the portfolio. So modified duration tries to put that into a number. It's a kind of a theoretical figure. 
And there's lots of other things happening at the same time in the portfolio, but it gives you a sense as to the rate sensitivity. And then today we're closer to 3.8 and we could go a little higher, say to four or slightly above four, which would still be below, say, the investment grade market or a government bond market, uh, an index of government bonds. Just to reiterate then, you can hear the rest of this interesting interview with Rhys Davis on the Moneymakers website. It will be free to view. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.